Well, a couple of weeks ago, Antonio was preaching here, and we looked at Christmas hope with him. Last week was joy. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And this morning, we are looking at peace. Hope, joy, and peace. I think there's three big ideas that the Bible speaks about when it speaks about peace. It, it speaks about peace with God. It speaks about peace with one another. It speaks about peace in the midst of our circumstances. My wife Tara thinks there's one more, peace and quiet. Amen. You got some folks with you, Tara. We're really going to look at two of those this morning. I think Mike Henry will touch upon another one next Sunday morning. And I hope you will join us. I know that it's Christmas Day, but what an appropriate day to gather together with church family to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Antonio will be leading us in singing. Mike will be preaching. I'll be here, not in my jammies, but I will be here and would love to see you all with us as well. I want to talk about two ideas related to peace that we can experience because of Christmas, because God in his great love has sent Jesus Christ into the world, not only to be born the babe in Bethlehem, but to live and to die and to rise to ascend and to reign as he does now. Because of Jesus Christ, because of Christmas and all that that implies, a couple ideas related to peace. The first one is that because of Christmas, we can enjoy peace with God. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible... Pull it up on your phone or other device that you might have with you, and then I'll just remind you, bring your Bible with you to Redeemer. We love to look at the scriptures. In Romans chapter 1, from verse 18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to share with us some very, very bad news. It is the predicament that we find ourselves in. And it is this, that there is a universal need for righteousness because none of us has it. God demands that we are righteous, but all of us, without question, are unrighteous. In verse 18 down through 32, Paul seems to be speaking about the Gentile world and says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse so God made himself known in the created world 
And in verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, crawling creatures. They exchanged the glory of God for idols rather than give thanks to him and glorify him. They turned away from him. And in verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. And in verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. It's not a pretty picture for the Gentile world to whom God made himself known through creation. And rather than worship him, glorify him, and thank him, they rather exchanged his glory for the worship of idols and turned to sin. And in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through 3, verse 8, Paul seemingly takes up not the Gentile world, but the Jewish world. Those that were blessed by God to have received his law, not only the natural creation that they could see through the things that God had made, but God had also given to them his revealed word and the covenant of circumcision, and yet they too had turned from God to sin. And they too were without excuse. In verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you were storing up for wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Verse 17, even if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Down in chapter 3, verse 9 to 20, he sums it all up. What then? Are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throats are an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of Athens is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says... And Paul has just been quoting verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament law. It speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth, Gentile and Jew alike, may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. From 118 to 320, there's not a lick of good news. It's all bad news. That all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God, that there is a universal lack of righteousness. And that our destiny is, as Paul said on a couple of occasions, wrath, and that none of us will be able to speak up in the end in our own defense. Long time ago, way back in 1991, I went on a scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas, and I got redshirted. All right, pretty good. My freshman year, I'm going to be redshirted. For three games, I was redshirted. And then the fourth game, I got thrown in to be the starting quarterback. I went from not going to play at all to now you're starting. A few games into that, we weren't very good. I was not very good. A few games into that, we had a game at Fouts Field. I think it was against Sam Houston. Wet, nasty day. And I, but I played pretty good. We got whooped. And we had, we had a team meeting in Kerr Hall in the cafeteria. I can still remember it. And the Denton Record Chronicle had published an article about that game. And it opened up something like this. It was a slip. Well, now I'm doing it as, my, as Coach Parker would have said it. So we're at the team meeting, and Coach Parker pulls out the article from the Denton Record Chronicle, and he starts to read it. It was a slippery, sloppy, sorry, sour afternoon at Southfield. And he began to read this article about how nasty of a day it was and basically how nasty we played. And I'm thinking to myself, not me. And he asked, anybody want to disagree on their own behalf? And of course, he's not looking for anybody to raise their hand. But stupid me did. I'm th- he, he's, he's just wearing us out. And I'm thinking, but I played pretty good. And I raised my hand. And he turned and looked at me. You got to know Coach Parker. Why? Get your hand down! (laughs) Well, in the presence of Almighty God, there won't be any of us, even with the inkling, to raise our hand and say, not me. Every mouth will be closed. All the world become accountable to God. We're in a mess, but you see verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, this justification to be received through faith. 118 to 320, no good news at all. 321, wonderful news. The righteousness of God that we must have but don't is manifest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's revealed It's provided for those who will believe. God has made provision for sinners through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, we are justified. 
We're, we're declared righteous. We're not made righteous. We're all sinners. But based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross for our sins, God forgives us of our sins and takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes it to our account. And thus, he declares us to be righteous and accepted by him. Such good news. And he does it as a gift. It's free. By his grace, it's undeserved. And it's through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He paid the ransom price in order to redeem us, to make us his again. Which was in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. That means that he's a satisfaction of the wrath of God. We had a major predicament, but God brings a full provision in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gift is received there, at the, there in verse 25 through faith. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't have to do anything. There's no steps or rungs that we must climb. We simply receive it with the empty hands of faith. And thus, verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in chapter 4, he illustrates it from Abraham and David that indeed we are saved not by our works, but by faith. Over and over and over again in this chapter, faith, faith, faith. And it brings us to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you're doing Bible study through the book of Romans and you come to chapter 5, verse 1, you have to ask your question, okay, have I put my faith in Jesus? Because he's now assuming that we have. Therefore, having been justified by faith, have you put your faith in Christ? 118 to 320, you were a sinner destined for the wrath of God, and you couldn't do anything about it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't clean up your act. You can't go to church enough, read your Bible enough, be good enough. None of that. 321 and following, God provides it through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his life, and in particular, his death upon the cross in our place and for our sins. The redemption of that he accomplished, the propitiation that he became upon that cross. And by trusting, by putting our faith in him, this salvation comes. But assuming that we have believed in Christ, 
And having been justified, one of the other things we most assuredly have, Paul says, is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about another great word here, reconciliation. And he's going to talk about who we were before this happened. Let's just read a bit. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul says we were helpless. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies. But now we've been reconciled. The, the enmity is over. The war is over. The hostility is over. We've been reconciled to God and we have peace with him. John Stott, he says, he talks about the four main uh, big ideas related to what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. He said, that related to propitiation, we're thinking about the temple precincts where the sacrifice would go and would propitiate the wrath of God against sinners. When we think about redemption, he said that we, we have in mind the slave market where Slaves were redeemed. Someone would pay the ransom price in order to buy that slave for themselves or to set them free. Then we have with justification, it's, it's the image of the law court whereby the guilty is brought before the judge and he pronounces either guilty or justified. He said, when it comes to reconciliation, we may be talking about the family room. 
So we're not in the temple precincts. We're not at the slave market. We're not at the, in the, the court of law. We're inside of a home where there has been hostility and broken relationship. But now, reconciliation has happened. And there's now friendship. And there's now love. There's now kindness and care. God has done this for us. He has made us his friends. He loves us. He cares for us. You've heard me say it before that it is amazing grace that we get justified by God. He declares us to be righteous because the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. Amazing! Praise the Lord! But, but it gets better than that. And Stott would put the doctrine of adoption inside this one of reconciliation. It, it's not only that he declares us righteous, but he makes us his own. He adopts us into his family. He reconciles his enemies to now be his friends. This is awesome stuff. And it's all because of Christmas. Well, let's look at another kind of peace that we can enjoy because of Christmas. Go with me to Philippians chapter 4. So go to your right. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Because of Christmas and the peace that we now enjoy with God, we can also now enjoy the peace of God. In Philippians chapter 4, maybe we'll start in verse 4. I quoted this a couple of times last week. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And again, this is the Apostle Paul. He's in prison while he's writing this. Let your gentle spirit, your magnanimous spirit, be known to all men. And that may have been hard. They were being oppressed and opposed. They were being persecuted for their faith. And yet, Paul is urging upon them to rejoice and to be gentle or magnanimous even to those who would oppose them. The Lord is near. Now that could mean at least two different things. It, it could be speaking spatially that the Lord is, is near, he's close to us. Or it could be speaking temporally with the idea being the coming of the Lord is near. Read a couple guys this week who think it's that maybe Paul has both of them in mind, that he really is kind of playing with both the, the spatial and the temporal ideas. That our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is near to his people. 
He has come to reside within us through his very spirit. He is with us. And wherever we go, he goes. There's not a moment that we are without his presence. Paul would say at the end of his life in 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 4, even in his darkest hours, he said, the Lord stood with me right there by my side. And the coming of the Lord is near. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord and, and be magnanimous, be gentle even with your enemies. And, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is so often our predicament here. The last passage, our predicament was 118 to 320. We're all in sin, destined for judgment and can't do anything about it. Well, this is speaking to the beloved children of God who are so very, very prone to anxiety and worry. One defined worry this way, worry is going beyond legitimate concern that leads to responsible action, right? We're, we're not to be uncaring people and we're not to be careless people. Worry is going beyond legitimate concern that leads to responsible action to being consumed by something whereby your thoughts and emotional energy are fixed upon it. Some of you struggle with this more than others. All of us, though, can find ourselves here living with anxiety or worry about this, that, or the other, one fellow called it anxious, harassing care, unreasonable anxiety, which arises in one who is full of cares, especially about the future. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 was encouraging us and teaching us not to be anxious and not to worry about what we'll wear, about what we'll eat, about tomorrow. Why? Because our Heavenly Father cares for us. He knows what we need and He will take care of us. It's hard, isn't it? Because there's so many things that we are uncertain about and there are so many things that we just absolutely cannot control. So it makes us afraid, apprehensive, unsettled. And our mind gets to racing about them and sometimes even our heart gets to pounding about it. 
about the future, whether it's our health, our spouse's well-being, our kids, our hopes and dreams for our lives, the latter years and how we'll do, and for some, even death. So much uncertainty, and I can't control it. It makes me nervous and anxious, and I, and I worry, and I go... It goes beyond legitimate concern that leads to responsible action, but my mind gets consumed by it and my emotional energy gets fixed upon it. Jesus would not have us live that way. And Paul certainly doesn't want us to live that way. Be anxious for nothing. It could be that the, the verbal idea here is that they, in fact, are anxious. They are worrying, and he's telling them to stop. Stop being anxious. They were being opposed for their faith. They were being persecuted for their faith. That may be the thing that's on the front of their minds. But Paul seems to take this and just make it universal when he says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. One said, the way to counter anxious, harassing care is by specific petitionary prayer offered along with thanksgiving. Another, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Part of me wants to go, hey, listen, Paul's given us a simple answer here. We know it's a whole lot more difficult. You know, if he was here, we could really dress him down a little bit because, you know, hey, Paul, really? That's all I got to do is pray about it? The other hand, I want to go, this is the word of God to us. Paul is saying to you and to me in any and every circumstance where we find ourselves anxious and worried, have we prayed about it? He uses a handful of words here. Prayer is just the seemingly general word for prayer. Supplication seems to stress that we have needs. Lord, there's something on my mind. There's something, in fact, that is got me scared, got me anxious. The requests, by prayer and supplication, let your requests, that word seems to carry with it the idea of the very specific things that you may be asking for. And then, of course, there's added to this with thanksgiving. In everything, pray and Supplicate, ask God to supply your needs and make your requests known and do it with thanksgiving. That even as I'm taking the things that I'm caring about and worried about and anxious about to him, Paul says one of the antidotes in the midst of all of this is to be thankful for all of the things that indeed God has done. Right, Because our anxiety is, and, and, and our requests are seemingly things that God hasn't done yet and we're asking him to. 
God, would you do this? Would you do that? Because I'm scared about this. I'm scared about that. So would you, would you, would you? And, and, and part of the deal, maybe, and, and Paul's saying, and, and in the midst of it, remember all that God has done. In particular, the salvation that he has provided for us in Christ. But then just a long list of good blessings that have come our way from the hand of God. Make it known to him. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Peter O'Brien wrote about this, and I like what he said. Why then are the requests of the Philippians to be made known to God? Not because he is unaware of either the petitions or their content. Rather, by bringing to him their requests, which reflect every possible cause of anxiety, they, that's you and I, are laying out our troubles before him, or in the words of the Apostle Peter, casting all our cares upon him. In doing this, the Philippians acknowledge their total dependence upon God, and at the same time, they are assured that he knows their earnest desires. They have told him of them. I like that. God knows about it. I already told him. Right? God knows what's going on in our life. Why do we have to make our request known to him? Doesn't he already know? Of course he already knows. But by putting them before him, we're casting them up to him and acknowledging our total dependence upon him. And as if our theology didn't already tell us this, it reminds us God knows about it because I told him about it. So I've said before, and I remind myself and you, have you prayed about it? I can sometimes find myself fretting over something for days only to jolt myself to go, how about you pray about it, Mitch? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Have you prayed about it? Is there anything that's just got you right now that you're worried about, that you're anxious about? Maybe it's something revol revolving the future that you know not and you can't control it, and so it's causing a bit of unease. Paul would remind us to pray. And said, the effect of this accumulation of three synonymous nouns for petitionary prayer, pray, supplicate, make requests, is to emphasize the importance of the Christian, in the Christian life of constancy in believing an expectant prayer. So, Paul says, as we do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Real quick. It's the peace he possesses 
the peace of God. And it's the peace that he bestows in measure to his children. So think about him for a moment. It's the peace that God possesses. You and I get worried and anxious and the like. He never, ever does. He isn't nervous. He isn't fearful. He isn't fretting. He isn't wondering. He isn't anxious. He isn't afraid. He isn't frightened. He isn't jittery. He isn't skittish. He's not panicky. He's not scared. He's not spooked. He is absolutely calm, cool, and collected. Even as we might say, the world is falling apart. One theologian wrote regarding God and his peace, it is the serenity in which he lives. And another said the tranquility of his own eternal being. Aren't you and I glad that God does not worry or get anxious or panicky or fearful? I am. Because when I get worried or panicky or fearful, the last thing I want to know is that he's worried or panicky or fearful. But he's not. He lives in absolute perfect serenity and tranquility and shalom. He's the God of peace. And he can communicate that peace to us. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I kind of hinted at it earlier. I, I feel a little bit nervous about just pray about it. Because I know how anxiety can get me, and I live, and I, I know Tara wouldn't bother me saying this. This one affects her more than it does me. Anxious thoughts, worrisome thoughts, fearful thoughts. And I bet she would say, I have prayed about it. So I get it. But God inclines his ears to you and me. When we're fearful, when we're afraid. And he longs to hear from us. For us to take the things that worry us and burden us and say, here, you take it. And we may have to do that over and over and over and over again. Two old hymns that I think speak to this sort of thing. And then we'll sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and grief to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what foolish pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Isn't that true? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. 
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And here's another. Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care. And bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, thy wings shall my petition bear. To him whose truth and faithfulness engage the waiting soul to bless. And since he bids me seek his face, believe his word and trust his grace, I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. So brothers and sisters, what's making you anxious this Christmas season? You worried about anything? Fearful about anything? Because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to Him. He's now our friend. And we can experience the peace of God in the midst of our circumstances as we take those things to Him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, for my brothers and sisters here, would you teach us to pray? In particular, maybe how to pray about the things that worry us and make us anxious fearful. And Lord, your peace comes our way not because you answer all of our requests. The peace comes simply, apparently, from just talking to you about it. Casting it up upon your shoulders, telling you what we're experiencing, telling you what we would like to see asking you to help thanking you for 10,000 graces towards us that the peace comes in that might we learn this and might we know this and especially Lord maybe today in this Christmas season any here today that are weighed down with a heavy burden. Might you come to them in grace and in mercy as they pray and help them to experience your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.